0: Hello, this is Bill Curley
1: and Holly Hudley,
0: and welcome to the podcast In Between, which is an educational offering of
1: St. Paul's United Methodist Church and Ordinary Life.
0: So I want to begin today by announcing that in November on the weekend of November the 13th and 14th Diana Butler Bass is going to be speaking at St. Paul's. Mm-hmm. And the plan is that she will also be speaking at the Ordinary Life Hour. Great. On one of those Sundays. And um Diana Butler Bass is coming um in November, and um, this stirred up a lot of things in me. Um, I had read much of Diana Butler Bass's book, Christianity After Religion, mm-hmm. or I think that it's the title of that book. Um, let me be more precise about that. Um, she has a new book out which is um, why she is coming on a speaking tour. Um, She wrote a book called Christianity After Religion, The End of Church and Mm. the Birth of a New Spiritual Awakening. And um, now she's written a new book, which I started reading today Mm -hmm. called Freeing Jesus. (laughs) And... um, I'm going to continue reading the book because I want to be knowledgeable about it by the time she gets here. And also, uh, if I have a chance in the Ordinary Life Hour to interview her or we do or you do or however that comes out, uh, I I would like to know about it and know what she has to say.
1: Yeah. Um, My experience with her has been um, really awakening. And I've read several articles and chapters by her, but I haven't read Freeing Jesus, and I haven't read the whole of um, Christianity After Religion, just excerpts from it.
0: But... I have to confess that I did not finish reading it either.
1: Okay. No. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll just hold that confession here. <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, and, I, and I may go back, but I think that at the time I was reading that, I, it was dealing with territory that I felt, I don't mean this is an arrogant, that I'd already covered. Yeah. And it may turn out that freeing Jesus is that way, too. Yeah. Uh, but I don't know. She. I it's, know she's a very popular writer and speaker and very, very engaging for mm-hmm. tons of people.
1: Well, it's validation that um, there's other people in the community of thought. Mm-hmm. You know, you don't have to repeat and redo everything that um, every other thinker like-minded thinker has done or said, it's just nice to know that the community of thought is wide enough to reach many audiences.
0: Yeah. So So anyway, I have a question to ask you. Okay. Um, Jeff McDonnell, the senior minister at St. Paul's, is the energy behind getting her here. Mm -hmm. And the Ordinary Life um, um, Endowment, the Curly Endowment is going to participate in some portion of the expenses of having her here. Mm-hmm. And um, Jeff sent around a link to her blog. Mm-hmm. If I send that to you, can you post it with this podcast? Yeah,
1: yeah we we'll just post it on the summary. Absolutely. And Lynn Schroth did as well. Send us something, I think, on YouTube that she found inspiring. So we'll post a couple links for sure.
0: So what Diana butler Bass? Raises in this post that Jeff sent around is what's going to happen to the church after COVID? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And ordinary life is right on the cusp, the front edge of, as is St. Paul's, of having a procedure in place to begin regathering. And uh, you and I had a conversation yesterday about this, and uh, I I think I left you very dissatisfied <laughs> about what I said. And the, the fact is, when I read this blog from Diana Butler Bass, it so perfectly described my own sense of feeling
1: mm.
0: when somebody says, like you've asked, how do you see things going forward? How do you want? And my answer is, I don't know. Mm. I don't see anything. And I I think, let me just tell you what Diana Butler Bass says in her blog, and then we can operate. She talks about how the one thing we need to do is to find ourselves again,
1: Mm -hmm.
0: because we have been dislocated. (laughs) <laughs> and she names four ways that we have been dislocated. I think these are really major things to consider.
1: Mm.
0: We have had temporal dislocation. We have had historical dislocation. Mm-hmm. We have had physical dislocation. Mm-hmm. And we have had relational dislocation.
1: Yeah.
0: Um now you you have mentioned a number of times in the past year your understanding of the word religion meaning to bind together and to bring Mm -hmm. things back together and i think that that we don't have a picture yet Mm -hmm. of what that can look like I, i i may have mentioned to you yesterday when we were talking i can't tell you how many times in the last nine months i've had this growing awareness that i don't know what day of the week it is frequently right,
1: right. yeah i completely relate to that um, it seems like a lot is bleeding together because we sit in this you know in some ways are so much more mundane we don't move about as much we don't have person to person and so all of our scheduling is is in the home and so there's this kind of i think of um <laughs> of Maggie Smith in Downton Abbey. And she's an aristocrat on the show who, um, you know, she's just a a beneficiary of inherited wealth. And there's this one episode where she says, what's a weekend? (laughs) You know, she doesn't know the difference between Saturday, Sunday, Monday through Friday, because she's not a working member of society for very different reasons. Not based in aristocracy. We're having that sense of like everything sort of bleeds together. But, so I'm asking also, what's a weekend?
0: <laughs> you know, I'm, I, yeah. I'm, I'm no different than other people here, uh, uh, but um, I have a history at St. Mm-hmm. Paul's that lasts over 30 years. And for the last 20 of those years, with some exceptions, you know, when I've been ill or out of town for holiday or whatever, mm-hmm. I've had a routine of going to the church on certain days of the week, keeping office hours and seeing clients and interacting with people at the office. And as you know, because thank God for you, you were so instrumental in helping several office (laughs) dislocations and relocations for me Um, to make a long story short uh, the church went through this $10 million renovation, which meant I had to move my office for a year and then move back into a brand new office Mm -hmm. architecturally designed just for me. I mean, I feel very honored and all of that. It was my space and it was, it felt wonderful and I got to use it three months and it's gone. And, um, so I, I switched to Zoom. I made those accommodations, and I, which in some ways is better. I had a session with a client this morning in California, and I will have one mm-hmm. later today with somebody who's in North Texas. So mm-hmm. Zoom offers a lot of flexibility for people, mm-hmm. uh, but I'm having I'm having people who live right here in Houston say, "I'm not sure I want to come back to the office."
1: Yeah. Oh, for sure. I met my friends who are therapists are experiencing the same thing with their clientele um, that people are a, a little anxious about coming back to the office. And also there's a convenience of being able to stop something one minute before you have to go um, into your hour with Bill or whoever else and um, not have travel time. I mean, personally, I love not having travel time. One of my least favorite things to do is to sit in traffic and something that is an hour ends up taking two hours, you know, it's, it, those are, I don't, I don't, in that sense, I don't love the in-between. I don't love being, <laughs> I don't love being, I don't love traffic. You know, I don't love the sort of travel time that that, that is taken out of the day because of, because of that. So, you know, there, it's both. And it's both the anxiety as well as the convenience of this is all right. Like I can fit this right into my day without and I have my friend who's a um, therapist and couples therapist said um, more people are showing up and keeping appointments yeah, because of that convenience. Well,
0: I think that's one reason. I also think people uh, use therapy to, um, this is not an original idea with me. My friend Don Williamson thought of this probably 40 years ago. Therapy, uh, a, an appointment with a, a therapist or a spiritual director or some regular thing like that brings a sense of order to life. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. we, we can break what we feel like these overwhelming circumstances um, down into bite-sized manageable pieces. And that's part of what therapy does. Um, mm-hmm. I, I started thinking about Uh, After we had our conversation yesterday, I I thought a long time about okay, what do I want? What do what am I what am I longing for in um, the process of reopening? And one just simple answer is just being with people. Mm -hmm. Um, I I, you know um, I was on a task force about 20, 25 years ago when Dr. Bankson was uh, at St. Paul's. And we tried to come up with a mission statement for the church at that time. We did a major reorganization of all sorts of things and took polls of people and everything. And, and people were identifying St. Paul's as a sacred space in the heart of Houston, where people go to seek out and find spiritual experiences. There was nothing about Jesus in it. There was nothing about Methodism in it. There was nothing. It was, and it's what people feel when they get in that geographical space. And I think Mm -hmm. the same thing is true for Ordinary Life. When we were together, it was a community of people who came together and it was sometimes hard to shut them up at the beginning of the class.
1: Ringing that bell three yeah, and four times. to get
0: people to <laughs> quit having a good time. Yeah, we're loving yeah. each other. Yeah, but I think that's one of the major roles of a community. It's why monasteries reformed uh, back back in the third and fourth centuries in the time of Benedict, is that people wanted to be in a community, um, and they 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 weren't there just to worship. They were there to work, they were there to pray, they were there to eat, they were there to learn, and a a whole variety of things. So I miss that coming together. And I know that when we do begin to reopen in June, as I've said to the steering committee, it's gonna be a work in progress. We're gonna feel our way along until we get some semblance of what feels right. I don't know that we will ever ever go back to the way it was maybe we will I don't know
1: yeah I mean you know this in this this very question gives me so much pause too because um I don't know if there is Josh kind of jokingly refers to like the before times and the after times uh, as this COVID period and the before times when we would you know hug each other or whatever um (laughs) that I, I, there are this, and I said to you yesterday, like this gives us a chance to sort of pause and really say, does everything need to go back to the way it was before? Not specific to ordinary life, but broadly even just sort of on societal times. I don't, you know, we're not, we're not nearing the end of COVID. This is one iteration of a virus caused by human contamination in the environment uh, a friend of mine sent me an article about how the closeness of the human community if you will breeds things like this we've got over you know we've got so many people in particular places interacting with nature and infringing upon nature in such a way that nature says whoa like i can't can't handle the pressure right mm-hmm. so this isn't going away this problem of how do humans interact with or find synchrony with one another and with nature. We haven't found that. So any, any sort of talk about the end of COVID to me is a bit, of a bit of a pie in the sky idea, unless we actually choose to do some behaviors and some things different. So I think the pause here is, well, what can we do different that might allow for some more holistic changes that could actually impact mm-hmm. our human being in a better way. And the truth is, is, you know, Elia Delio spoke of this when she did the seminar with us some years ago. We are already hybrids. We already have things like uh, automated arms and uh, metal in our brains. And, you know, we, we, we are already hybrids. AI, artificial intelligence, exists in our life in such a way that it is part of us. We have an extension of of, of global knowledge at the end of our fingertips that then gets itself inserted into our brain, right? There's almost a, a seamlessness between us and technology. So this, hy- this idea of being hybrids is part of the evolution that we've created. We've created this evolution with technology. So we have to learn to sort of like adapt to it in a way that also builds community. And, and this year has given us ways to do that. And of course we need touch. Of course we need interaction and human uh, connection, but, but we already are hybrids. And I wonder like, what can we use or look at in that situation to be more creative with how, how we move forward?
0: One of the things that Diana Butler Bass says in her blog is that when we get back together, when we do begin to re One of the things that we cannot, these are my words, not hers. One of the things that we cannot avoid doing is grieving together. Because we have lost so much. Um, So many people have died. We have not had a chance to have the communal grieving experiences of funerals and memorial services. Um, I had a friend who died during the COVID. I got an email from his daughter yesterday saying that they were hoping to have a memorial service in August, and that's Mm. so far removed from the event. It's just going to feel so weird, Um, but I think we'll have to feel our way along with that, too. Um,
1: I opened her um, blog post as you were talking about it, and I really love this paragraph. I um, and I'll read it right here. Lost doesn't refer to what is gone. It also means that which is mislaid, out of place, dislocated, as you said. Sometimes lost just means we're lost. And that is the other task for the post pandemic world to help others find what has been lost to point the way beyond the thicket. We need to find ourselves again. We need to be relocated into the world. Mm -hmm. And I was reading something else this morning, there's a an Instagram handle that I really like called Black Liturgies. It's beautiful prayers of of grief and joy and hope and loss. Um, grief and joy are not opposites. Joy encompasses right. grief. And and this is something I think I've been trying to articulate over the last year is like lengthening that space between what has happened and what do we do about what has happened and being able to incorporate the different emotions and the different, um, what feel like opposites into the same experience. Um, Yeah, and I I think we, as a society, I don't know if this is a global human society, but for sure we as Americans and even particularly in my social location of being a white American, we move so fast from what happens to what do we do. Mm -hmm. And there's a certain amnesia that happens in there. When we move so fast from what happened to what do we do about what happened, we become amnesic to to all of the ways that that the event may have impacted lives. And I think that this cultural amnesia, is something we have to
0: address. Right. And, and I, I just wanna say one other thing about the grieving and loss before moving on to the other side of joy, which also, because of COVID, involves a tremendous amount of grief and loss, but mm-hmm. I cannot tell you how many people I know, both in and out of the church, personal friends of mine who uh, died during the last year, where not even their spouses could be with them during the time I of death. Know. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah.
0: And they yeah. they there's this lack of closure that uh, so many yeah. people are having. On the other side of that coin, now maybe I'm making this up. I don't think so. Mm-hmm. During the time that I have been at St. Paul's, I have seen countless young women come through that church, fall in love with the space and say, I, I want, want to get, get married, married here, here. <laughs> and to play and to begin. And, and, you know, I don't know about you, but the, I've always said to couples, the wedding belongs to the, to the woman. Um, and, and so I know that that young women put years, years of thought and planning and planning and preparation. Well, before and, we even meet the person.
1: Very often, and it's partly it's socially conditioned. I drew my wedding dress when I was like nine years old. That's like insane.
0: (laughs) Well, nobody. I think it's a part of of being initiated into womanhood, um, which women have a lot more um, sane and intact rituals for that transition than men do in our culture. That's one of the reasons we have such a violent, screwed up culture right. but i know that, that so women plan for this for years and and i know because i'm get to see the consequences um you want to get married at st paul's and you call and say i would like to schedule my wedding and they say well we have a space in two years mm-hmm. or something like that mm-hmm. so women have known they need to get on the schedule early and then covid hits and we're doing the wedding.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Gone. Mm-hmm. It's just gone. Mm-hmm. And that you know that leaves a, a wound, a loss, a sorrow.
1: For sure. I mean even if the wedding is just sort of sort of a time marker, right, of a of a of a, of a moment in time, not it certainly is not the whole of a of a marriage. But, um, but I have very fond memories from my wedding. But I, I do want to go back to that a little bit, the social conditioning. I know this isn't the point. The point is the loss, the loss of gathering, the loss of celebrating, the loss of being together with loved ones and friends to, um, to celebrate this moment in time. You know, I think you said to me and Josh when we got married was this is really just a marker of all of these people who are here to support you in love, right? And something like that. But you know the, these conditionings that women go are are privy to <laughs> drawing my wedding mm-hmm. dress at age nine. Uh, they're very specifically guided towards a heterosexual normativity, right? It's and, and so it mm-hmm. is, it assumes a lot about wanting to get married, about wanting the children, about wanting you know a sort of traditional life and. Um, you know, this, that leads me into something else is that one of the things we're dealing with this year is so many intersections, you know, when, when, and what I mean by that is like, we're looking more acutely, more intentionally than maybe ever before because of technology at who has been left out, who has not been part of a narrative that we've constructed. Right, And that sort of speaks to that kind of cultural amnesia. It sort of speaks to what else we have to grieve, which is that not just who has literally left us and died in the last year, but who has been left out for generations. And we're putting a microscope on that in a different way than certainly in my lifetime. Um,
0: You know, I I think that one of my profound fears that gets stirred up when I hear people say, I'll be glad when things can get back to the way they were. Uh, uh we don't want that. Mm -hmm. We don't want things to be as they were. I mean, even in the wake of the George Floyd verdict, George uh, Derek Chauvin verdict, we're hearing more and more about police Mm -hmm. brutality and lack of accountability and transparency. And, um, there's this culture war going on in, in the United States that is openly seeking to dis, disenfranchise people from the political yeah. process. That's the drive to go back to normal. And as you said, we we cannot afford yeah. to do that.
1: No, we can't. I mean, I think, the, I, I, did, I didn't know, we didn't know where we were going when we first started, but this tips right into, um, To me, the question of evil, and I've been contemplating this a little bit the last couple days, is just, I think evil, and I'm going to use this word again, amnesia, are closely related. Um, Mm -hmm. I want to quote my brilliant husband when he was speaking on Sunday, reckoning is what happens when we don't remember. He like blew me away in saying that. I had never thought of those words together in that way. Reckoning is what happens when we don't remember. And so we're left to deal with all of these pieces that um, we haven't reckoned with or remembered, told the story of, included in the story. And And we're dealing with our cultural amnesia right now. And all the evils that cultural amnesia has cost us.
0: We're dealing with the line this Sunday in the Lord's Prayer that says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, which is the most mistranslated and misunderstood line in the entire mm. prayer. And I'm going to speak to that, but it, it does. We, it, it, that mistranslation and that misinterpretation has created an image of God in the minds of many people as this super protector, mm-hmm. or worse, this God who leads people into bad situations.
1: As a test. And, as a huh? test, as a way to see, what are you going to do? As a,
0: as right. a test. Um, and, but but mm. I'll speak to that Sunday when I, I talk about the how the history of that line, uh, what it originally meant, uh, and uh, how it got perverted over a period mm. of time. Um, uh, gross misunderstanding of the nature of the yeah. sacred.
1: I, you know, I love James Baldwin. Um, he is, gosh, the more I read of him, the more I'm just like, he is so prescient. Am I saying that word right? Prescient. <laughs> I feel yeah. like such a Texan when I say certain words, um, but the he really was so locked in to the complexity of the human being and of cultural learning, in a way that very few other authors I've read are, and he's he's right on the ground too. You know, there's a lot of sort of philosophers that stay up here. Um, Terre de Chardin writes about evil and, and, and as a growing pain, as a sort of cosmic groaning, if you will. But that keeps it up here. It keeps it sort of abstract, and it's just part of the process. Um, what people like James Baldwin are able to do is bring it right down to the street level, <laughs> you know, right down to like this is what it looks like in mm-hmm. real life. And he writes in a in an essay. I have this giant book of essays of his called The Price of the Ticket, and it's collected essays from for over the span of almost forty years. And you know, as usual, he just kind of nails it. He says, it has always been much easier because it has always seemed much safer to give a name to the evil without than to locate the terror within. Wow. And that's kind of what we've done to God. We've, we've given God our salvation and the devil, our Mm -hmm. temptation you know we mm-hmm. put it outside of ourselves we've dislocated it
0: right there's a great line that John Dominic that I got from John Dominic Crossan when he says that we over the process of a, a long period of history god god got dislocated mm. god got put into the sky away from the earth and came to be believed in as an external force that could and might intervene to Mm -hmm. save us and John Dominic Crossan said we need to quit waiting for God because God is waiting for Mm -hmm. us to collaborate
1: (laughs) we're co-creators you know
0: Or co-creators and I don't know how much you've read in um, America's new book
1: I haven't started it yet as you know, I've been trying well, to wrap up this 40-page <laughs> comprehensive.
0: <your> Do <hands>, your, <laughs> your orals, uh, yeah. comprehensives and all that. But he defines God as uh, as um, the creative force that is in yes. everything. Yeah. And, and the First Nations people and earlier iterations of Homo sapiens knew this a lot better than when religion got a hold mm-hmm. of God.
1: This is what I like to call kind of our, I don't know if this is unique to me, but what I like to call like our cosmic orientation. Our, our, our cosmic orientation is around this knowing that we are part of this ongoing evolutionary story. And that that is known in many um, um, ancient and indigenous um, customs and traditions. And I, I think in the same way that we are talking about remembering. We have mm-hmm. to remember ourselves to this process. Um, we've become mm-hmm. so hyper focused on individualism that we have not remembered that we are part of this grand process. I, I love that this idea that remember and dislocate are kind of related. Um, Lanicia and I were talking about that on Sunday is remembering the body. So if we think of the body, and a limb is removed Mm -hmm. from the body, right? We have to remember it. It it, When it's removed from the body, it becomes dislocated. And remembering is kind of part of putting the body back together.
0: You know, we talked a couple of Sundays ago about having spiritual attention deficit Mm -hmm. disorder Mm -hmm. and um, being distracted. Mm -hmm. That is losing our traction, losing a place to stand. And over and over in the living traditions, the admonition is, pay attention. Be here with all of who you are. And this is the great benefit, I think, of depth Mm -hmm. psychology, that it shows us that we live in a time where I see three things happen to um, us over and over and over again. One, I see that we... We are distracted, fragmented, and technology has contributed to that, but also the desire to be, um, it's kind of like one of my teachers in clinical training said, you know, if you're distracted and fragmented, nobody can wipe you out all at once. They wipe you out a piece at Mm -hmm. a time. Or the, and if people feel overwhelmed by life and by circumstances, that fragmentation can happen. But it means that we never show up as who yeah. we are. And another thing that, that <laughs> is going on with us is how we numb ourselves in so many ways to simply not pay attention to what is going on. Um, again, I think the George Floyd murder And the reckoning that's been happening since then is giving us an opportunity, however much people get tired of hearing about it and don't want to hear about it, to pay attention to things that are deeply hidden in the the way things are that are disadvantageous to people. We had one of our politicians say this last week that We white people built this country out of nothing. I know.
1: What the hell was that? I mean, not only does that erase the ways that, um, and I just um, gathered an article on this, uh, um, which I haven't dived into, the ways that um, Native American Council, the way of gathering in circles influenced our formation of democracy. It erases so much. That statement erased so much and you know, and I, oh gosh bill i was i just saw this too that you know maslow's hierarchy of needs has been one of the most popular sort of icons in psychology right his hierarchy of needs is based on blackfoot indian tradition ways of creating community and self actualization through community nowhere in his work is he is is the blackfoot indian tribe given credit nowhere I just learned that.
0: I'm a, I I'm just learning it yeah. from you. I didn't yeah. know that.
1: So it's just kind of like this again, amnesia. Our amnesia around things is just is cost, it costs us not only relationality and relatedness, but it costs us the ability to heal. You know, when we when when we cannot remember ourselves to our past, we suffer from it. Haven't I heard my spiritual teacher, Bill Curley say, "What well, we don't transform, we transmit over and over yep. and over again.
0: Yep.
1: Yeah. And yep. later in this passage, I just got a little fiery, didn't I? <laughs> later in this That's passage okay. with James, from James Baldwin's essay, he says, um, oh man, between inhaling and exhaling, that the self one has sewn together with such effort is all dirty rags. To learn it is unusable, is gone, and to ponder, out of what raw material will one build a self again? And that's well, where we are, you know?
0: Yeah. I want to read you the closing few sentences of Dinah Butler Bass's yeah. blog. Our lost world needs finding. Pandemic dislocation calls for guides and weavers of wisdom. Mm -hmm. We don't need to return to the old ways. We need to be relocated. We need to find a new place, a new home in a disrupted world. And at the very heart of finding our lost selves is relocating our hearts in and with God. There's a journey beyond the pandemic, and we will find the way a step at a time. We haven't been to this particular future before, and we need one another to get there.
1: We are tangled in a single garment of destiny, as Martin Luther King said.
0: Yeah. So, um, I'm not apprehensive about it. Uh, I'm apprehensive about some things in our culture, but I I think that um, we'll find our mm-hmm. way. And I I think what we must let go of is we want it to be just like yeah. it was. We got to let go of that because I don't think we can recreate. I that. agree.
1: It's
0: too dangerous. Yeah.
1: We're in a new place in evolutionary time. We cannot go back to the way it was else we want to repeat what just has happened
0: you know right
1: here's the beginning again
0: yeah well and that's what we'll talk about two weeks from now we're going to talk about the future's pulling us forward and say yes 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 <laughs> i future. love that line yeah yeah uh, we would do yeah. that So anyway, everybody, put November 8th on your calendar. Diana Butler Bass is going to be here. And um, if you want to read about her and her work, we'll put a link to the blog in the text that goes out about this. And um, the book is Freeing Mm -hmm. Jesus. Um, As I said, I started reading it today, and I, I will persevere with reading that i'm re i'm loving reading a book um it's just so um it's so hopeful mm-hmm. about uh the possibility of our participating with creation in in uh having a more inclusive and loving future mm-hmm. i'm also re-re-reading always we began mm-hmm. i i there are two books i read once every year, and one of them is Finding Meaning in in uh, Living an mm-hmm. Examined Life by mm-hmm. Jim Hollis. I love his stuff. So I read that every year, and then I reread Always We Begin Again, mm-hmm. um, and, and Always We Begin Again. The passage I read today is about how much we need a community of love for everybody mm-hmm. to be yeah. a part of.
1: Yeah, the question I'm untangling with that is who is creating the community? And again, that's an act of co-creation. It's not you and me mm-hmm. saying, here, we created this and we want to include you. It's saying, let go of that. And what can we right. co-create?
0: So the question that creates community is to ask, who are you? Mm. But what we are trained in our culture to ask is, what mm-hmm. do you do?
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Nothing slams doors faster than yeah. that.
1: Yeah.
0: So who yeah. are you?
1: Yeah. Well, thanks.
0: That's a great question. That's a great biblical uh, biblical question. Who do you say that I um, am? <laughs> the, the, the great question out of the Hebrew tradition, uh, there are actually two of them that form the Jewish genius for their liturgy and the prophetic voice that rose up. Uh, as part of the first axial age, the questions were two. Who are mm-hmm. we and what are we to do to create justice, love, and mercy? That was a prophetic thrust. And then um, in in the Christian tradition, before Constantine got a hold of it, the question Jesus asked was, who do you say right. that I am and who is the you who's asking yeah. that
1: question? yeah. Should be stop us in our tracks okay. question. So it's a perfect place uh, to stop. Who are you? Okay. <laughs> All right. See, see okay, you. Okay. Bye bye.